0: Good morning. To begin, I want to look at Psalm 38. We won't be here very long. We'll be in Psalm 38 next week. But the gist of what you're getting this morning is what would have been the introduction to the sermon to Psalm 38. And to help explain why that is, I want to look at Psalm 38. In Psalm 38, David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof. They stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips." For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good because, or accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. And... I would suggest to you the great theme of this song, or the psalm, is the Lord's discipline on believers' chastisement. And just look at the first few verses. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. The Lord is very active in the pain that is expressed in this psalm. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. This is a hard thing for us to wrestle with. But I think the scriptures are very clear. And so, like I said, I was writing an introduction and the introduction blew up. And so, you're getting the introduction this morning rather than me go for 40 minutes and say, well, that's the introduction. Then you feel threatened because we might be here for two hours. But... Going to Romans 8. To come into a psalm like Psalm 38, we must have the fundamental disposition that God is for His people. And that He works all things for the good of those who love Him. This is broader than chastisement for our sin. This is all suffering. That we deal with in this life. And so we're really going to be all over the place, mostly to have a lens of Romans 8:28, looking at what scripture presents and seeing what we can learn from this. So if you'll stand, we'll read from Romans 8, starting in verse 18. And we'll go through verse 30 just, well, 31, just for context. Heavenly Father, please help us. Help us in the preaching of your word. Help us in the hearing of your word. Help us to submit all of our reasoning, all of our emotions, all of us to the truth of your word. Help us to be anchored by your great promises. and the truths that you've revealed to us. Lord, we need you this morning. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin by considering what is required for us to be able to say with full confidence, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is required for me to really cling to that and believe that? And really, there's two things. Uh, The first is you would have to believe that God is sovereign over all things so that there can be a purpose in all things and that God is powerful to work all things towards that purpose. You'd have to believe that in order to really cling to what Romans 8.28 is saying. But you would also have to believe that God is good and that purpose for which he is working all things is good for his glory and for his people. And in order to really embrace Romans 8.28, you have to believe both those things. Otherwise, you don't really believe Romans 8.28. You really aren't believing what the text says unless you believe in God's absolute, utter sovereignty over all things, and he's good and has a good intention and purpose for all things for his people. So we ask, do you truly believe that God is sovereign over all things? The confession that we hold to as elders is very clear and I think very helpful in its clarity. In chapter 3, paragraph 1 of God's decree, says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. And as Reformed folks and This is one of the most foundational pieces of our distinctive theology. We believe in God's utter and absolute sovereignty. You may be familiar with R.C. Sproul's famous quote, If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then, ladies and gentlemen, there is not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. If he doesn't control all things... Well, how do I know that what he's promised me will come to pass? I don't. I hope. Cross my fingers. Maybe if we're lucky, God won't lose control of the steering wheel of reality and he might bring his promises to pass, but that's not what the Scriptures teach. Scriptures teach that he controls every single thing. And that's why we can trust him. If you want to, we can, I'm going to read from Isaiah 46 to give you some scripture that I think is abundantly clear on this issue. God is uh, condemning the pagan gods that Israel was is tempted to worship and He differentiates Himself from these pagan gods. He says in verses 8-11, through 11, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Well, how is there none like God? What makes him unique? Well, he tells us, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is what makes God different than all the pagan gods. They can't do that. They don't know the end from the beginning. I mean, it would help if they existed in the first place, but They certainly don't know the end from the beginning. They can't declare the end from the beginning and they can't bring about all their purpose. But our God can and does. And this is what makes him unique. This is what makes him different. We see in Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of who? Whose purpose? Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the purpose for whom we've been predestined. So if we believe that God is utterly sovereign over all things, which I assume most, if not all of you here this morning do, do you also believe that he is totally and completely good? Do you believe that if you are a child of God, that if you are born again, you belong to Jesus Christ, that he is for you? Do you believe that? Oh, we might struggle with this and say, well, if this is true, I, I am being cheeky here, so be forewarned. But if this were true, wouldn't we live in a garden paradise, lives of ease, with all the food we could eat, no drudgery in our labor? The answer is, well, yes. And that did happen, and we ruined it. We botched it in our own rebellion. All suffering in this world is a result of sin. We read in Romans 8 that creation groans because of our sin. And we groan inwardly, even as God's people, because of sin. We groan because of sin, whether it's Adam's sin, whether it's sins of other people afflicting me, or whether it's my sin. All of it is why we suffer in the various capacities and reasons why we suffer. And though we know our suffering is ultimately because of our sin uh, corporately in Adam, and because of us personally, we we still struggle to profess that God is absolutely, totally sovereign, and that he is good. But this is what we confess, and this is what Romans 8.28 says. For those who love God, all things work together for good. This is not some things, this is not a few things, this is not most things. This is all things. He works together all things for the good of those who love him. And we see in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the question is not, well, I'm confused about whether God's for me or not. That's the assumption. And since we know that God is for me, well, then who can be against me? That's the real question. But the, the underlying assumption is God is for me. And this means that in all the suffering that we endure as God's people, it comes from the hand of a good God who is for me. Not accidentally, not like, oops, I didn't mean for that to happen, but I'll make the best of it. It comes intentionally from a good God who desires your good. This is what the Scriptures teach. And this is what undergirds such a hymn as what we've sang a few times, "Whatever my God ordains is right. And just to remind us of the first line or the first stanza, "Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. As difficult as it often is to submit the assessment of our experience to the truth of God's Word, we must. We must submit our assessment of our experience to the truth of what God's Word says, rather than what we are tempted to do the other way around. We submit Scripture to my assessment of my experience. Scripture can't say that because, well, I feel this way or it doesn't jive with my understanding of what I've experienced. Scripture can't say that. Where we must, by God's grace, go the other way around. That my assessment of my experience must submit to the Word of God. Now let him tell me what to think about my experience, rather than let my experience tell him what he should say and what he cannot say. And if this is overly difficult, and very easily can be, too difficult for us to grasp, or not to grasp, but to accept. I think if we center ourselves on what uh, the life of Christ, we can find ourselves a good anchor to hold on to. In Acts 2, 22 through 24, we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, this Jesus never failed for a single moment to love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, with all his mind. He never failed for a single second to truly and fully love his neighbor as himself. He never failed even once to maintain sexual purity in his mind and in his body. Never once did he fail in this. He failed to love with all the fullness of the definition of love we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 13. As often as we fall short of that beautiful definition of God's love, he never fell short. He was always to the fullness in his love of that definition. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The suffering came from the hand of God and Christ Jesus took it and took all of it upon himself willingly. The only truly innocent and righteous man in all of history. He suffered in ways that most of us will never even begin to relate to. The public humiliation, the public torture, the excruciating pain he was delivered up to the full wrath of Almighty God against all the sins of his people. And to put it this way, even this, the darkest moment in all of human history was ordained by God. So we should hold to that and understand that whatever I've experienced It is not the same injustice that Christ experienced. It is not to the same degree as the injustice that Christ experienced. And God was in the center of that and worked it for His good, as we'll see later. Worked it for our good as His people. Worked it for the good of His glory. He can do the same in everything I experience. So, for today, I want to consider how we think about God being for us even in the experience of suffering that is seen today with three categories, or three points. We'll consider suffering in the life of the non-believer and how this works for the good of God's people. We'll consider suffering in the life of the believer and how God works this for the good of his people. And then we'll strive to obey that admonition in James 1 to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. So, we begin by uh, considering suffering in the life of the non-believer. What is the purpose of bad things, hard providences, happening in the life of the non-believer? And how are these things worked for the good of those who love the Lord? There are two possible answers that I have, and I'm sure there are more. I can't even begin to claim to be exhaustive, but I have two. And the first is it's to drive the unregenerate of God's people to Christ. Among the non-believers, there are those out there that who are yet God's people to be called, and often it is their suffering, either in uh, punishment of their own sin or otherwise, that drives them to Christ where there is life. And then the second that I have for this morning is it serves as a warning to them, to all of humanity, that there is a greater judgment coming. There is a coming day when there's a greater showing of God's wrath. And you have this warning now as a grace from God to repent. And you get it over and over and over and over and over again. So, when we consider... Suffering that drives the unregenerate of God's people to Christ. For We have many examples of this. We have, I'm going to say Naaman or Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He was a Syrian general attacking God's people, struck with leprosy, and goes to Israel to find healing. And he's told to bathe in the Jordan River and grumbles about it at first, but when he finally submits to it, He's healed. And we see in 2 Kings 5.15, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all, earth, all the earth, but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. And we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar lately, and the struggle with Nebuchadnezzar is, is questionable as to whether he drops all these other gods that he's worshiping. Although he is praising the one true God, We don't have that confusion with Naaman. He says, there is no other God in all the world except the one in Israel. And I know this because I was afflicted with leprosy, and I suffered, and I was humiliated, and then I found healing. And so his suffering drove him to the source where healing can be found so that he would forsake his sin and find life. In Daniel 4... We see Nebuchadnezzar, and we see that after he is struck with madness, obviously in response to his pride, he puffed himself up and he said, "Surely I've done all this in the greatness of my own power and according to my own glory." And he's struck with madness and eats cow or eats grass like a cow. Yeah, madness to eat a cow. Um, but after he's healed of his madness. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We have some, I think we often overlook this idea in the New Testament. We see the official at the end of John 4. This is an official who comes to Jesus wanting healing for his son. And Jesus isn't, With the afflicted isn't with the sick. He's told to go back and I will heal your son. I think it's your son or your servant. don't remember off the top of my head. But he gets back and the afflicted is healed. And it says in 453, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. The affliction of his son drove him to seek where life could be found. And he found it and then had a faithful response because of it. And we see this, we can say this really with everyone who approaches Christ for healing in the Gospels. They approach him because they're suffering. They approach him because they need relief. And in their suffering, they're driven away from where they're at to where there is life. And so that suffering is used to bring those who might not otherwise approach Christ to Him. And we see the goodness it is for them. We consider it's good for all those who love God. Many of you in this room may be able to relate that it took some really hard knocks for you to finally submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to go to Him. And so you know from personal experience that your suffering was used of God for your good and for the good of those who love them. You see, bad things happen to warn God's people of a coming judgment. And we see this all through the prophets. We were originally going to read Ezekiel 25, but um, I thought it better to look at Ezekiel 24 this morning. But in Ezekiel 25, you find God's oracles against the nations, that there's a coming judgment, there's a coming wrath, you guys will be wiped out and obliterated. This is said to Ammon, Moab, and Seir, Edom, Philistia. One of the repeated themes here is, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know I am the Lord. And I think most strikingly, if you'll turn with me to Luke 13, this is a good passage to have on our minds with this theme. Luke 13:1 through 5. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the idea here is their blood being mingled with the sacrifice was disgusting, utterly repulsive and offensive. And the common Jew may have thought, Well, they must have done something really bad to deserve that fate. And I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm better than them. And I hopefully won't deserve that fate. But Jesus is saying, they weren't worse sinners than anybody else. And unless you repent, you will likewise face judgment. And he says um, in verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's almost like it was just the random news fact of the day. You heard about this tower of Siloam falling and killing these people that it fell upon. They weren't worse sinners than anyone else that they deserved this to happen to them. This stuff happens in God's providence. And it serves as a warning. Unless you likewise perish, there is a coming day where you will be judged. And God's wrath will come upon you. And so we can understand this to say, any tragedy that happens is a warning, is a reminder that unless you repent, you likewise will meet a similar fate Every earthquake, every flood, every day with lack of food, every death of a family member or a friend, all of it is a continual warning over and over and over again. Seek the Lord while he may be found because there's a coming time where he will not be able to be found, not savingly. And then his wrath will come upon you in its fullness and it will be too late. And so we see that these sufferings from this perspective, are a great grace. Even to those that will never repent because it's a continual warning over and over and over again that they do not deserve. They don't deserve to be reminded over and over again that God's wrath is coming and that you need to repent. But God in his graciousness gives those warnings over and over and over again. This is one of the reasons why we see in Romans 1 that they are without excuse. We know by God's creation that there is a great God who's made all these things. We know that we're not thankful to him. We know that we do not give him glory as we ought. And on top of that, every tragedy that ever happens is a reminder to seek him while he may be found. And for those who never repent, they don't do it. And they will not be able to say on the day of judgment, Well, God, if you had done something different, if it's your fault, Or if this person would have said the right words, maybe I would have repented. God gives ample evidence, ample warnings over and over and over again. And we are without excuse. We see again in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, we'll come upon in a few weeks. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem and is rejected. More grace that is undeserved. More reminders to repent, to seek life, to forsake your sins and seek Him while He may be found. And so we see in these two ways, suffering is used for the good of God's people. It is used to drive us to Christ for life. It is used to remind us of the wrath to come. And for those of us who know Him, these things are reminders of us, as we've been talking about evangelism lately. They're reminders for us to go out and evangelize. We may be saved from the wrath to come, but we may have loved ones who are not. And these tragedies continually remind us He is coming again. It will be a glorious day for His people. But it will be a day of terrible wrath for those who do not know Him. But what about suffering in the life of the believer? How is suffering in the life of the believer used for the good of those who love Him, for the good of His people? And to consider this, Scripture doesn't give us no answer and invites us to speculate. Scripture gives us several answers, and again, I don't pretend to be exhaustive here. But we see that suffering produces endurance in the Christian's faith. We see that suffering is a means God uses to expand his kingdom. We see that suffering reminds us that this world is a vapor. We see that suffering assures us of our inheritance And what we'll look at next week is that suffering disciplines the Christian as a true child of God. In all of these, we must cling to the truth that God is for me. So in all these ways that suffering might come, and for all these good purposes, we're getting off the wrong track if we get an idea that God just, he likes to inflict pain like a sadistic boy torturing an animal. that can't fend off the boy. God is no way like this. He is for His people. And whatever He does, whatever my God ordains is right, He does for His people. He does for their good. Often, our suffering is worked for multiple purposes at once. And we can rarely discern in the moment what they are. Sometimes we can discern them later But I I do believe that in the life to come, we will be able to look back and understand it all by God's grace. So let's look at suffering as it produces endurance in the Christian's faith. Let's look at Romans 5. Romans 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what I want to note right away, so often we are tempted to think that suffering is an evidence that I don't belong to God, that He's angry with me still as a sinner, unregenerate, unjustified. But this text doesn't think that way. This text doesn't teach us to think that way. The status of those who suffer and are rejoicing in their suffering are those who are justified by faith. They have their justification. They have their life. And so the suffering is not a statement about their status. We see what the sufferers have. They have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is what those who suffer have. And so again, their suffering is not a threat to those things that are promised in this text. Our present sufferings are not a statement about our present status with God, nor are they a threat to our future hope. And it's because of this. We can only, this is the only way we can rejoice in our sufferings. Is if we understand that our sufferings are not a threat to my status in Christ or a threat to what I've been promised in future hope. If I can embrace that, then I have a shot at rejoicing in my sufferings. But if I can't embrace that, how can I rejoice in my sufferings? because my, rejoicing, or my sufferings would seem to me to be a statement that God hates you and is angry with you as a sinner, and you're still under the wrath of God, unregenerate, unjustified. But again, the Bible doesn't teach us to think this way. It teaches us in this text to see suffering as something we can rejoice in because it will produce good fruit in us. And it's a means by which God will conform us into the image of his Son. This is why we can see in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this isn't an isolated theme. This is a theme that shows up multiple times in Scripture. That suffering comes to build us up and strengthen us. And in that sense, it is from the hand of a good God who is for you and desires you to grow in Christ-likeness. And this we, we can consider for an illustration. When a piece of metal is selected by the blacksmith to be turned into a tool or a weapon, there is heat that is applied. There is banging on that metal that is applied. And if we consider ourselves in that situation, the heat is painful. The banging is painful, but that process assumes that the blacksmith has already chosen this piece of metal for this purpose. And in the same way, in this context, the heat and the banging of God's uh, sanctification on us is evidence that we have already been selected and we've already been chosen. We already belong to Him, He's already using us for a purpose. And again, it is not a threat to our status in Christ. We see that suffering is a means that God uses to expand his kingdom. We see Hosea being commanded to marry an unfaithful woman, knowing ahead of time that this will be a painful relationship. There will be betrayal. There will be heartache. And do we think that God commands Hosea to do this because he's eager to see Hosea heartbroken and in pain. We cannot think that way. The scriptures will not allow us to think that way. We know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And so we must understand with a New Testament lens, Romans 8.28 lens, when we read Hosea, this is good for Hosea. This is good for Gomer. This is good for all the people witnessing this. And this is good for God's glory. Perhaps even harder to take is what we read in the Old Testament today, Ezekiel 24. Certainly, an experience I cannot relate to, the pain that is here. Ezekiel being told that I, the Lord, will take your wife away and as Caleb was good to bring up, there is nothing in this text that would indicate that Ezekiel did something to tick off God and that this is why you're losing your wife. Just to show you why, just smack you upside the head, I'm going to take your wife away, cruel and unusual punishment, because of something you did. There's no hint in the text that Ezekiel did anything to bring this on. The whole drive of this text is, Well, we're talking about the expansion of God's kingdom. That Ezekiel would be used to be an object lesson, as he's often used in the book of Ezekiel. As an object lesson for those who are seeing that they might repent of their sins and run to the Lord. God's not doing this to Ezekiel because he wants to make Ezekiel's life harder for the sake of it. God's not doing it because he's just looking for an excuse to smash Ezekiel. And he certainly doesn't do it because he enjoys causing pain. He does it because it is for the good of God's glory. He does it because it is good for Ezekiel's wife. Of course, if we assume she's regenerate, which I do, I don't see reason to doubt it. It is good for Ezekiel's wife. One of the darkest points in Israel's history, and she gets to be taken from it and into glory perhaps hardest to take, is that this is good for Ezekiel. And yet we must affirm that this is true because this is what the Bible teaches. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking a bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. Often, God's providences are a bitter cup. And often we don't take it unshrinking. And yet we pray by God's grace, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to cling to what Scripture says is true. And again, not to submit Scripture to my assessment of my experience, but to submit my assessment of my experience to Scripture to say he works all things for the good of those who love him. And this must mean yes, even when God takes Ezekiel's wife away, it is for his good. You can look at suffering as it reminds us that this life is a vapor. That this life is short. We consider in general, this was very helpful when we read our book on Ecclesiastes. Our fundamental bent is to try and build lasting things. We all want to build things that will outlive us. Whether it's a strong family or we contribute to the state in some way and we want this to be our legacy. Whether it's a business that we built. Whether it's even a local church that you have poured your life into and you want this to just be a legacy that We can see decades down the line, man, this faithful young man poured his life into this church and we honor him still today. We think of any organization. We want to build something that's permanent and lasting. And all of our sufferings remind us, you cannot do that. Because much of our suffering is in the shattering of these things. Much of what we suffer is because these things that we try to build are broken. And we cannot keep them together. I think of 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's interesting, you have like a chosen race, you think there's something stable in an ethnic group, in an ethnic association, a royal priesthood, there's an organization here. Um, something that you would think would be stable and long-lasting, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All these images are of things that are um, stalwart and strong. And yet Peter goes on and says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He describes God's people now as sojourners and exiles in this life. We are not in the business of empire building. As much as we yearn for that, that is so much in our DNA. Whether it's a small scale empire or the biggest scale that we can imagine, that is not the Christian's business. Because we know that this life is a vapor and all of our present sufferings that so often shatter these things that we attempt to invest our meaning and our identity in they remind us that there is not there's not meaning and identity to be found there much as many of these things are good and even God ordained that's not where i am in my fundamental being i am in christ and he will make a new heaven's new earth which will be permanent which will be immutable, which will be untouchable by all the sufferings of this life. But that can't be found here. And our present sufferings are a constant reminder of this from a God who is for us. Hebrews 13, 12-14, we see, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And so already you've got an an interesting image. Jesus is outside the city, outside the camp, outside of the established, glorious organization. He's out there in the wilderness where he was crucified. And then it goes on, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And our sufferings remind us of this. Because we're constantly trying to build a lasting city and we can't do it. And we're not meant to in this life. And our sufferings remind us there is a lasting city to come. And you are to look forward to that. We see suffering assures us of our inheritance. Matthew 5, 10-12 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And again, we get this beautiful reminder. The suffering is not a threat to my status in Christ. It's not a threat to the promises that God has given me. In fact, in persecution, the suffering is a reminder of what you're getting. A reminder of the promises that you will receive. And so the sufferings that are from a good God for you, when we consider persecution, say, look forward to what you'll have. You may not have much in this life. But in Christ you will get all things. And the whole world will be yours. We think of the great theme in Revelation. One of the most repeated lines. To the one who conquers. And all the promises that are appended to that. To the one who conquers. And again, not in a militaristic sense, but to the one who endures the suffering that's coming. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And the last one, to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage. The heritage is to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That suffering that we endure is to remind us that to those who endure that suffering, this is what awaits you. And so again, we see that our suffering is from the good hand of God for our good. And as we'll look at next week in Psalm 38, we suffer in chastisement for our sins, even as believers. And again this whole week or this whole sermon this morning is to try and get us on the right foundation to go into Psalm 38 that as someone bought by the blood of Christ God is not looking for a reason to slap me around God is not looking for a reason to cast me out of the family and so when the chastisement comes it is met it is understood in the same context as all these other sufferings It is from a good God for my good. And so we come as we attempt to count it all joy and all these sufferings that we endure and all these different purposes for which they are meant. We remind ourselves that we begin with the foundation that we believe God is utterly sovereign over all things, that whatsoever comes to pass has been decreed, and we believe that he's also good and works all things for the good of those who love him. The Heidelberg Catechism's opening question is one that you really ought to memorize and look at. And I say that, I haven't memorized it, so I'm going to read it to you. But it's a good reminder to me and to us. It's, it's beautiful. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And if this is true, by God's grace, I can rejoice. I can rejoice in my sufferings. And I won't do do it well. I may not do it often. But by God's grace, may we rejoice in our sufferings because all things must work together for my salvation. And they do because my God is in control of all things and he is purposing all things for my good. The Holy Spirit in his inspiration of holy men to write the scripture shows absolutely zero embarrassment in claiming absolute sovereignty over all these things. The Bible shows no sheepishness in this. Just boldly. He decrees the end from the beginning. He'll bring about all his purpose. As if we should feel no embarrassment in embracing this the degree to which we attempt to shrink from god's sphere of sovereignty is the degree that we rob ourselves of biblical comfort and assurance in our trials and i know for many outside of our tradition the first thing that goes is god's total sovereignty and this is seen as a comfort because they they cannot reconcile that god is utterly sovereign over all things and that he is good And yet, what alternative is there? It is no comfort to think that this bad thing happened to me because God lost his grip on the steering wheel of reality and he's just doing the best he can in the meantime. That is no comfort because he might lose his grip on the steering wheel of reality again and again and again. And who knows if I'll even be saved at that point. There is no comfort outside of an utterly sovereign God who is good. And so we celebrate that regardless of my assessment and my experience, I serve a God who promises that all things work for my good. And in His wisdom that is immeasurably greater than mine, I can trust Him completely to make good on His promises. And so we can count it all joy as we face trials of various kinds. As we turn to the Lord's table, we ought to consider Christ's sufferings again. We think of Hebrews 12, 1-2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider the reasons that suffering is uh, for the good of the believer. We see that It is Christ's suffering that produces our Christian faith at all. And the whole reason that we have faith is because Christ suffered. The whole reason we can endure at all is because Christ suffered. We can consider that His suffering is the means by which God uses to expand His kingdom. This great cloud of witnesses that we read about in Hebrews 12, that great cloud of witnesses only exists because Christ died. And His people have been bought with His precious blood. And so we see it's for our good, and even for his good. His suffering is the means, uh, or his suffering reminds us that this world is a vapor, and we are meant for so much more. He ministered for a brief three years before before we had crucified him. Three years was enough, and for the Pharisees it was more than enough. They would have done it sooner if they could have. We consider how much of the gospels is focused on the last seven days of his life, of his earthly life. His life is a vapor. And Christ was not building some great, glorious earthly empire, he was building a spiritual, eternal empire that is untouchable. And we are reminded of this in his suffering. His suffering assures us of our inheritance. As Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he has told us he is coming back to take us with him. We have this wonderful promise in John 14, 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so in all of our sufferings, we're united with him and his sufferings, and we look, he's coming back for us. He's not left us here we see that his suffering is the very grounds of our status as true children of God. So we come to the Lord's Supper celebrating how Christ's sufferings were for our good and trusting in him that all our sufferings are for our good as well. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. Let us pray.